I felt as if I'd stepped into an entirely different world, an alternate reality with its own natural laws. It all may seem entirely outrageous, but I am only describing what I actually saw with my eyes, felt against my skin, and heard with my ears, along with the other sitters, and I assure you, I am not exaggerating. I was able to maintain my clarity of mind, even while enjoying myself immensely, and I carefully studied the digital recordings of the sessions afterwards to be sure my memories were accurate. I made a point of noting my observations out loud so they would be captured as a record of what had happened to me. How do the trumpets fly around like that? Like the mediums of the past, Stewart's ectoplasm makes it possible. In May 2000, Frida said all the physical phenomenon depend on this vital energy substance, which is both spiritual and physical. It can be manipulated by the spirit energy to change from a smoky substance to something solid, from something unsubstantial to something very substantial. From the ectoplasm, the scientific people in our world are able to create either pseudopods or ectoplasmic arms. It is these that are connecting themselves to the trumpets, dear, she said. The other end is attached to the medium. It is part of him. I was amazed that, just as Gilly had noted so many years earlier, Frida pointed out that the seance room creations are very fast as compared to the development of life in the womb. What takes nine months to reach fruition is created within seconds in the seance room, she said, reiterating that this is why ectoplasm is so extremely sensitive to light. Somehow, the ectoplasm can be used by the spirit people to move objects around the room. While Yusupia Palladino was in her trance, her spirit control John King explained in a similar way how the slates in the seance room were transported. He referred to the emanation as a fluid, saying it, quote, forms bundles of straight rays, which are like stretched threads and support the slates. When these threads or rays are sufficiently strong, the object may perhaps be raised above our heads. My ghoulies and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the ghoulish Jay and Rory Wicks. Ooh. Hello. On the show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. Hello. Welcome back to our basement. Yeah. Welcome back to whatever the fuck this is. It's a podcast. Oh, right. It's a podcast. I'd, I'd ask how you guys are doing, but considering I, I saw you come from the couches upstairs or the bedroom upstairs down to here, uh, I, I pretty much know how you've been. Do you, though? I've I mean, been gone all day. I mean, to be fair, I don't know what's going on in your internal world. You could be screaming. I'm fairly sure Jay has been screaming inside their own head for six months straight. I, I am. I have been. 
uh, Nick and I had a had a discussion earlier. It was earlier today or yesterday where it's like, I mean, I'm having an existential crisis, but I have been for six months. So. Yep. All right. Well, are we ready to deepen that existential crisis and see how crazy we can make Jay? Always. Uh, That's at least one third of the reason why I married them. Okay, good. Okay, good. I, I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one who makes important life decisions in the name of sadism alone. Yeah, no, yeah. Do you guys have some sort of running bet on who's going to be the one who casts the final straw that has me carted off to the loony bin for the rest of my natural life? It's not a bet. We all know it's going to be me. God fucking damn it. I mean, you are married to them. <laughs> exactly. Okay, you know what? I think it's going to be a dark horse. I think Kelsey's going to be the one that sends me over the edge. She's going to make a pun at the wrong time, and I'm just going to go howling into the night. Personally, I think you're going to do it to yourself. I, I think that that is most in line with your life story. I mean, that does seem like accurate. You're going to pick some book for this podcast that's just going to shatter your mind into a million pieces. Again? <laughs> Today, we're reading the Necronomicon. No. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're reading a printout of Len Gaston's most internal thoughts. Don't ask me how I got it. And on that episode, our listeners get to hear what it's like when three human jaws break from the tentacles coming out of their throats. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So are we ready to begin? Yeah, might as well. This is a heavy book, so let's get to it. Yeah, Whee! so today we are talking about Surviving Death by Leslie Keene. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, this is yet another journalist that was responsible for the 2017 New York Times article that uh, spilled the beans about the Pentagon's secret UFO task force. Uh, at just alongside Ralph Blumenthal. Those beans have been spilled so many times. At this point, I think we should just leave them on the floor. And they just keep shoving the moldy beans back in the can. Anyway, we're not here to talk about UFOs. We're here to talk about death. So without Yay. further ado, let's get started. What happens to us when we die? This simple question has haunted humanity since our earliest days, gave rise to ancient funerary rites, sparked millennia-long debates, and kept many of us awake long into the midnight hours. And despite assurances from the modern materialist scientific mainstream that only oblivion and rot awaits us, the mystery remains a living and vibrant part of existence for those of us who still have a pulse. And it is this mystery, and one investigative journalist's quest to solve it, which sits at the heart of today's book. In this book, Leslie Keene assembles all the best currently available evidence that our consciousness may survive death. Quote, my intention is to present some of the most interesting evidence from diverse sources and show how it interconnects, making it accessible for the intelligent and curious reader encountering the material for the first time. She goes on to clarify that when speaking of the hypothesis that consciousness survives death, she is talking specifically about the possibility that our individual personalities, memories and minds survive rather than simply ending or melting into a larger divine consciousness, as is suggested by many New Age belief systems. In the introduction, she lays out the two competing theories which sit at the heart of this issue, both of which attempt to explain the extraordinary evidence presented in this book. One side clearly sees the body of available evidence as indicating that consciousness does survive the death of the physical body, while the other, proponents of the living agent psi hypothesis, believe that the evidence we will be discussing here today is not the result of discarnate spirits or reincarnation, but rather the result of uncharted psychic phenomenon originating from still living humans. 
This survival versus living agent psi, or lap as we'll refer to it, debate runs through the core of the book. As to which side is closest to correct, Keen leaves that up to you to decide. It is also important to note before we dig too much deeper that this is not just a dutiful listing of studies and expert opinions, but also a deeply personal story for Keen. In the course of her research, she endeavored to meet the spiritual on its own terms, often by subjecting herself to seances and other experiences which most investigative journalists would simply scoff at. And through that, she gained a powerful window into the world of the dead and may even have been touched by them. However, not once in the book does she lose her journalistic eye, vetting all her sources thoroughly and constantly guarding against the potential for fraud, as she knows well that this is a topic which professional debunkers and dogmatic skeptics will find difficult to accept. And she felt the need to do so because the evidence does exist, despite the misgivings of mainstream materialist scientists who would prefer consciousness to amount to nothing more than electrical impulses inside the wet meat of our brains. (laughs) As she writes, quote, going forward, we must remember the famous words of William James. If you wish to upset the law that all crows are black, you mustn't seek to show that all crows are black. It is enough if you prove one single crow is white. Maybe you will find your white crow in the following pages, upsetting the law that death is final. In any case, I hope you enjoy the ride. And that's going to bring us to our first discussion question pretty early on. Uh, And the reason for that is before we get into the real meat of this book, I wanted to establish kind of a baseline between the three of us regarding our own beliefs or ideas about the survival hypothesis. So prior to this book, did you believe in an afterlife? And what did you think that looked like? What awaits us past that veil? Um, that's a that's a complicated question that I've been wrestling with for many years. Um, as as you and our listeners know, I was essentially forbidden from believing in an afterlife when I was growing up. Um, and at this point, I do. I do largely believe that at le- that our consciousness survives at least to some extent after we die. Um, I am not in a place where I can articulate what I think happens beyond that. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately, I think the simple answer is 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 yeah, I believe that there's something that goes on after we die. For a lot of years, I thought that was heaven. Um, And maybe it still is, just not in the way that I thought of it as an evangelical Christian. Um, where where, Where I am now is very different than where I was even six months ago in terms of how I, how I look at, uh, this kind of stuff. Um, but like, I think ultimately I generally, I've always generally believed that something happens after, after we die, because the idea, like even just the idea of nothingness afterwards doesn't make sense to me. It's never made sense to me. Something has to happen, you know, mm-hmm. that just, that, that, that's always resonated more strongly with me. Now, whether that is reincarnation or you know we end up in the the ether that is the greater consciousness or what you know whatever you want to call it i don't i don't know at this point um but i think there's something and i've always kind of thought that way okay 
Yeah, I, I think for me, I've also always thought that there was something when I was very young. Uh, likewise, I I just assumed heaven and mostly that was from cartoons, mm-hmm. uh, you know, heaven and hell. It's a very simple idea for a kid to get behind. One's good, one's bad. Uh, but the older I got, I kind of came to grips with two, I guess, fundamental problems with that understanding. One was. I imagine if you were a good person and you went to heaven, no one really could give me an accurate uh, description of what heaven would look like, because obviously we don't know. But the what the closest I got was, you know, this place of endless bliss and oneness with God and you're there for eternity. And every time I heard that, it kind of pushed me away because I thought, man, that is too long. I I don't have <laughs> I will get bored with it. I, I need some kind of stimulation, which led to me led me to. Again, I don't know if no, uh, but I always liked to think about the, about it being kind of like a new game plus kind of mode mm-hmm. where you die, you go up there, you spend some time uh, doing whatever you do in that other world. And when the time is right, you come back into the material plane uh, reincarnated as someone and you have your memories wiped, but you get to bring forward maybe some kind of like the soul lessons from the previous life. And that that was mostly, again, just something I like to think happened. Uh Largely because also I had I struggle with the idea of oblivion Mm -hmm. and ultimately in my own grapplings with that, because I had to deal with I I had a long period where I was grappling with my mortality after the car accident in 2008. Um, And the conclusion I came to is even if there is oblivion afterwards, me believing that right now is not important. I can believe whatever I want about the afterlife. If oblivion is truly what awaits me. Whatever beliefs I say that make me feel better about life on Earth, it it doesn't matter. It's a, it's okay. Um, since then, I've become a lot more sure in my belief that there is something, and I I still kind of like the new game plus model, especially in light of some of the evidence we're going to talk about here. But uh, again, you know, I I have to leave room for me being totally wrong. If I uh, if I die and suddenly there's a demon with a pitchfork there, I'm going to be real upset. Huh. Well, you I wouldn't go to hell. Yeah, I was say I don't think I don't think you would go to hell because no matter how, in my opinion, even if heaven was the answer, I don't believe that that the 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 Christian God is the one that gets to decide the the truth. There's far far too many religions and other faiths on there that have similar ideology or close enough ideology that. I, I, I refuse to accept that there's a God that would send good people to hell just for not believing in him. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It, it always seemed very petty to me. Yep. Uh, <laughs> kind of like, fine, you don't want to come to my party, then you get to be tortured forever. Right, right. You know, exactly. It's like, oh, well, I lived my entire life being a good person, but I'm a Buddhist. Yep. So, now so I get to burn in hell. Go me. Yep. We're going to shove this giant sack of fire ants up your anus. Uh, yeah. The, the good news is within mainstream Christianity, where those people also inhabit the real world and not just their church, that is rapidly falling out of favor. That is largely becoming like that is largely becoming fringe Christian Christian theology of the idea of good people going to hell just for not believing. That's the, the most common response to that I hear now is that's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm g- glad to hear that. Yeah, me too. I just wish it was reflected in any of the people that I knew. 
I mean, we have to remember that when like Jay talks about statistics like that, we tend to think about Christianity in terms of American Christianity. True. And I'm I the, the more we do this show, the more I am convinced that it's an entirely different animal from the Christianity a lot of other countries are dealing with. American Christianity is inherently linked to white supremacy, xenophobia and capitalism. Okay, and we're going to save that for a special episode down the line called Jay's Screaming Box. (laughs) (laughs) This week on Jay Ruins America. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you guys ready to get into the meat of this? Yes. As ready as I'll ever be. All right, section one, is there life before birth? This section of the book concerns itself primarily with stories of children who, due to an as yet not understood mechanism, seem to come into this world with the memories of a previously deceased person. While survivalists cite these cases as proof of reincarnation, those on the lap front argue instead that these children are somehow clairvoyantly and unconsciously pulling information about the deceased from the world at large, which they incorrectly think are memories. The first case covered in the book is the story of James Leninger, son of Bruce and Andrea Leninger of Louisiana. Comfortably middle class, the Leningers were of a deeply Christian background and did not accept the possibility of reincarnation in their worldview. A worldview which was upended in short order when their two-year-old son suddenly began showing an intense interest in World War II-era aircraft and began speaking of the fiery crash that had killed him in his previous life. What began as a deep love for the Kavanaugh Flight Museum soon evolved into night terrors, which left James shrieking in the night. Airplane crash on fire. Little man can't get out. After months of terrors, James, still only two years old, somberly informed his parents that he was the little man and that his plane had crashed because it was shot down by the Japanese. He went on to say that his plane had taken off from a boat called the Natoma. Seeking to put his child's terrors at ease, Bruce did some research and was shocked to discover that a small aircraft carrier called the Natoma Bay was in fact in service on the Pacific front of World War II and was involved in the battle for Iwo Jima. James even identified a plane he flew, a Corsair model, which it is worth noting was not among the planes on display at the local flight museum. As James grew older, now age three, he began to repeatedly draw the crash in which he had died, signing each picture as James III, as he indicated that he was the third James. He also began speaking in more detail about the Corsair airplane, listing facts about its operation and known faults, which, upon Bruce's later research, were proven accurate. Still, desperate to prove his son had not in fact been reincarnated, Bruce attended a reunion of the Natoma Bay crew under the guise of writing a book. To his shock, he met a man named Jack Larson, whom young James had frequently referenced as a good friend from his previous life. It was there that Bruce learned of James Huston Jr., an airman who had died at Iwo Jima. Being a junior, he was the second James, making the child James, James III. However, Bruce believed he had finally found the seam in his son's story, the Corsair, The Corsair aircraft was a specialty plane, not often flown in World War II, and in fact, there had been no Corsairs aboard the Natoma Bay. James II, having been shot down, just as James III had described based off after-action reports and witness statements, while he was flying an FM-2 Wildcat. But Bruce's hopes were yet again dashed when he learned that, prior to his deployment to the Natoma Bay, James II had primarily been a Corsair test pilot. 
Further adding credence to his story, James Three had named his three G.I. Joe action figures after three men who he said he had met in his last life and whom had greeted him when he got to heaven. All three men turned out to be real and all had died weeks before James Two. The hair color of the dolls even matched the deceased men's perfectly. Bruce finally surrendered and in 2004 took James III to the Natoma Bay reunion where he spoke with the other veterans with great familiarity, often addressing them directly by name when he should have no way of knowing them. In addition, he got to meet with James II's sister, Anne Huston Barron, and spoke with her at length about family secrets only members of the Huston family would know. However, what is most remarkable about this story is that it's not that unusual. James's case is among hundreds studied by Jim Tucker, a board-certified child psychologist who, through the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, has long been embroiled in the investigation of children bearing inexplicable memories of a past life. And in that work, they have verified over 1,400 solved cases, solved meaning that they were able to correctly identify the child's past life identity based off the information provided. In a chapter written by Tucker, he details how he and Dr. Ian Stevenson before him traveled the world locating these stories, most often from Asian or East Asian countries where reincarnation is more publicly accepted, though there are plenty of stories from the Western world. And what they found is fascinating. Most children who report this phenomenon involve their past death into their imaginary play, and many bear birth defects which echo injuries suffered in their last life. Most begin speaking of their previous selves while they're very young, around 35 months, and forget these memories by age six. Around 70% of them report having died violently, and despite what skeptics may say, the vast majority never claim to have been anyone famous. The median time between the previous death and current birth is about 4.5 years, with a variance range of 17 months. At 35% develop phobias related to their previous death, and nearly all showed an intense emotional response when presented with elements of their old lives. Keene goes on from there to detail the extraordinary story of Ryan Hammonds, a precocious little boy who represents one of the most thoroughly documented cases of past life reincarnation on record, due in large to the dutiful note-taking of his mother, Cindy Hammonds, which provides a record not only of what he said, but when. In a chapter written by Cindy herself, she details how it began with nightmares after Ryan spotted a photo of an unknown background actor from the film Night After Night, a 1932 feature which was the first appearance of Starlet Mae West. Ryan went on to report that he had been in movies, been an agent, had been wealthy, had a large home with staff, drove a green car, had many girlfriends, and loved travel. And it is worth noting that while his parents recorded all of his observations, they never prompted them. Ryan sometimes even seemed to confuse his current life with his previous, and on multiple occasions tried to pay his mother for cleaning his room, as he had once done with his maids. After an extensive search for the mystery man with no results, Cindy and her husband Kevin wrote to Jim Tucker with a list of their son's memories. This eventually led to Ryan's case being reviewed by the television show, The Unexplained, who hired a Hollywood historian who, to their surprise, finally identified the mystery actor as Marty Martin, a Hollywood talent agent. Under a controlled test with Tucker and prior to learning of Martin, Ryan correctly identified Martin's wife, family, children, and associates from photo lineups. 
They contacted Martin's still living daughter and through her confirmed nearly every single one of Ryan's memories about his previous life. In fact, among all of Tucker's cases, Ryan remains a record holder. 55 of his memories were verified. And while there were some that he got wrong, the details in each of those cases were exceptionally minor. Also, like James three before him, none of the information about Martin was readily available to Ryan, nor could it be found on the Internet. As Keene argues, the idea that these could be hoaxes is somehow more preposterous than the idea that these children are accurately reporting details of a previous life. And it is these stories which form the beginning of a compelling body of data that is the bedrock of the survival hypothesis, which brings us to our second discussion question. While cases like James 3 and Ryan's are certainly compelling, I couldn't help but wonder why, if reincarnation is a fact, we don't hear about stories like this more often. Why do you think we may not hear about cases like this as often in the Western world? And if reincarnation is the rule, why do we seem to have so few cases on record relative to population? Well, first off, before I dive into your question, I disagree with one thing that you said in your summary there. Yeah. And that was uh, that some of what Ryan got wrong was was exceptionally minor or that the details in those cases were exceptionally minor. And I disagree with that because some one of the things he got wrong was how his dad died and whether or not he was cremated. Those aren't small details. Okay. Yes. I think uh, in my mind, small in comparison to what he got right. A green car. I mean, that's that's a much more specific detail. Then how your dad died? It depends how much you like your dad. I if my dad if my biological dad died right now, I might never find but, out. Like my my point is like if there if there is a relationship there, which the way I read it was implied that there was sure that that's not a small detail to forget, and whether or not he was cremated or not. Sure, that's my whole. That was that was the only the only thing I'm saying there because like ultimately with those like. It is compelling in the sense of it's impressive, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when they get like names and things like that, right? But a lot of the other information is very generic. Like I drove a green car. Okay, how many green cars? Like I, it's I, it's yeah. like it's not hyper specific. See, I think for me, I was thinking more along the lines of identifying people from photo lineups and the like and things like that, or naming people. Like for example, Ryan three at the veterans reunion, knowing everyone's names. Yeah, and I'm not saying that that's not compelling. I'm just pointing it out there that is not it, it's not a hundred percent success rate. It's not even close to it from what I could gather. Like, and that's the other thing, and something that actually really bothered me about this whole section of the book is you got fifty five things right out of how many? Right, and we don't we don't get that for, number for any of them. Yeah. We don't get out of how many, and that that number matters to me. I mean, sure. Yeah, I mean, it would matter. It, it especially matters from a statistical standpoint, which is what I'm looking at it from. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, what's your hit? Your hit percentage? Like, even when you look back at like the remote viewing stuff, that's impressive to me because they had a, a, a 90 plus success rate. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, I can't know that because I only know he got 55 things right. That that's a good point. Out of how many? Yeah, that 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 is one piece of information I think the book could have uh, should have had in there. I think you're right. Um, that was that's my only hiccup, my only real hiccup with that whole section. Like I'm blown away by the stories. Don't get me wrong, but that just that lack of information does 
Um, it, it eats at me. Now, to your question, um, why do I think that we don't hear about more cases like this as often in the Western world? Um, because it is very, very, very stigmatized. Yeah. Over here. Anything that's not Bible thumping Christian laugh is stigmatized, especially here in the US. Yeah. Like, I mean, I would argue that now we have two modes. We have Bible thumping Christian life and uh, head in the ground materialism. Sure, sure. And uh, I, I was, I, I guess, I was thinking from a spirit, like from a spiritual perspective and a science perspective. Absolutely, like the material. The, I mean, fighting the materialistic mindset is literally the uphill battle that we fight. Yeah. With, with this, with the kind of stuff that we talk about on the show. Well, I mean, you know, it's, you're always caught in that uh, debate of accepting that there's more to this world than materialist science can can uh, can encompass. But at the same time, trusting in having tr- some trust in, in materialist science because it, it has created amazing things for us as a, as a society. Yeah. But and a lot of those things we would, uh, you know, 25, even 20, 25 years prior to that, to these these phenomenal, phenomenal things happening, uh, we would have said were uh, hokum and bullshit. Yeah. You know, and th- that's that's part of that mindset that really gets to me. because It's like, motherfucker, like. We thought this shit, we thought this way about everything, including electricity. Like, yeah. and now this is, you, you'd look at me like, you'd look at me like I was crazy if I told you electricity wasn't possible or it couldn't exist. Okay. Can you, you know? imagine just even going back 30 years? So what that 1991 and showing them a modern smartphone? It, it'd be, it's magic. It's sorcery or, or, or the, or a laptop. Yeah. Well, they have laptops then. They just, I mean, granted, they were much less powerful. Look at, look at, like, looking at a laptop now. Oh, yeah. In comparison to the bricks. Yeah, the, the, the six-inch thick murder weapons. Yeah. How hilarious would it be to, like, abduct a professional Pac-Man player from, like, the <laughs> 80s and, like, let him play Borderlands 3? Oh, God. <laughs> that's all it's a whole different set of skills at that point what yeah. would even happen to him i mean honestly i think probably when you know people started exploding into bloody bits he'd scream and turn it off yeah people's sensibilities towards violence granted i say that but look at the slasher movies in the 80s well the, the, those were con- considered incredibly subversive at at the time they were literally treated as being equal to snuff films and there were to this day, there are sects of evangelical Christianity that will excommunicate you if you allow your children to watch horror movies. That's so funny because I just remember like growing up watching those movies uh, on uh, late night channels mm. like that. That was my cartoons. I wish I wish I had discovered horror so much sooner than I did outside of like reading the books that I snuck when I was like, you know, in like after school care and shit like that. Well, next life. Yeah. No, no kidding. But anyway, um, and if reincarnation is the rule, why do we seem to have so few cases on record? And I think that plays in part to the first part of your question. It's kind of like what we talk about here. Um, there is mountains of really cool evidence of UFOs, of, psychic shit anything <laughs> like all all the craziness that we talk about on the show there's mountains of evidence from one or two people that have researched this in depth um 
and we don't have any more because everybody else looks at it and is like, yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna touch that shit. If like, I entertain the possibility of UFOs, I'll become stupid. Yeah, and well, and 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 I, I I wish I could say it was getting better, but there are days in which I'm on Twitter and I don't really think that it is. It depends who you're talking to, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so. I think it's honestly impossible for us to make that determination of are things getting better or worse or how things are changing. Kind of like you can't really, you know, again, you can't see the forest while you're among the trees, right? Uh, from the ground level, from the lived experience, it's very difficult to track large societal trends that are happening around you. Yeah. Because ultimately, you can only interact with so many people, and those interactions are what's going to shape your worldview. Yeah. I mean, I, reincarnation, believe it or not, this is kind of funny. <laughs> like, I think that there is, I, I think that there is potentially reincarnation at play uh, or something similar. But I wonder if it wasn't reincarnation so much as James three and Ryan were mediums. Um, Yeah. You know, and then these were the people that they were able to interact with. And because they're kids, they don't know how to say it other than, or they don't know how to understand it other than maybe they were looking or talking to themselves. And I know there are other cases where they they talk to somebody else but you know each individual is different in how they interpret what they're seeing and hearing and thinking and you know this that the other thing so i wonder if like when they were researching this and talking to the kids if they asked them even once if they saw this person outside of the pictures you know i don't know the only thing i do remember is I think Ryan uh, clarified to his mother, no, mommy, you don't understand. I was that man. Now I'm this person. But that's it. It could also, again, be a kid misinterpreting what he's receiving. Right. And and I only say that because like thinking about like like consciousness, conscious words are hard. Thinking about consciousness. What the fuck? Consciousness. That word. (laughs) Thinking about that. Um, and I'm starting to come around to the idea that consciousness is something that is always around us. You know, it it is a, it is around involved with in a part of everything that we are, that, that is, that is this world. And our brain acts more as a filter to consciousness than actually holding consciousness itself. Sure. Right. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Like that, that's kind of where, like where I'm at in terms of thinking about like the greater things. But um, I struggle with reincarnation with that view because if consciousness is this thing that's all around us and our brain is filtering it out. So when we die, we, you know, our, our body is left behind and we are just one with the consciousness that doesn't leave space for reincarnation in my mind at this point. Yeah. The only way I could see rectifying it is if, that other world, uh, that higher vibrational rate, if, you know, coming coming here is less of something that has to happen and more something that we like choose to happen. Yeah. Like you go, you can go and live in, in peaceful oneness with everything or that piece of the, the, the God mind that is you can choose to come down here and live a life and forget your true nature so that you can grow. Yeah. Could see. 
That's cool. I didn't think about that. That's a good way of looking at it. It's a choice. I like that. Yeah, you know, it's not like what Tenny said, you know, even if the life that you're going to lead is unpleasant, if you had a plane of a flat, a flat glass planet with no stimulation, no nothing to interact with, eventually you might, you know, you might want some bad. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Sorry, I kind of rambled there for a bit. That's all right. Jay, what do you think? So probably it, go, going back going back to my default of hinduism and buddhism there's a very simple explanation built into both of those traditions for why well why doesn't everyone remember their past lives like because it's hard because you have to most people have to spend 6 years meditating to remember any details of the last one immediately before this one let it, alone thinking about multiples Exactly. It's like the reason the Dalai Lama can do it is one, he has massive amounts of help. And two, he's at this point, the Dalai Lama is essentially a bodhisattva. He has attained enlightenment and is choosing to repeatedly come back into the cycle in order to guide others. So Uh, funny. You just answered a question in your uh, your sentence there that I was just about to ask. You were, you were going to ask about his holiness? I was going to ask if uh, I was going to ask if uh, the Dalai Lama was considered a bodhisattva. Um, I'm not. I will. I will admit it's like I don't I don't know if he has ever used that term for himself or if his his particular Buddhist tradition even recognizes that it is the closest word that I as a Westerner have to articulate what Vajrayana sure, Buddhism sure. considers him to be. But sure, yeah, he sure. is he's an essentially es- essentially yeah. for our purposes of my pigeon drugstore Buddhism that I <laughs> on this show. <laughs> Please, for the love of God, consult okay. an actual Zen master. I, I know how you, what you meant in your use of the word pigeon, but now I'm imagining <laughs> Buddhist pigeons, and that's <laughs> that image is just going to live with me now. All animals have a Buddha nature, <laughs> but any, uh, but so that that seems like the most likely explanation for me is just like it, it's very hard. And Rory referenced the fact that it's it's deeply stigmatized in Western culture. And that actively makes it harder. Mm-hmm. It's it's difficult to achieve a Zen state when everyone around you is telling you that a Zen state is either sin or proof that you're an idiot who shouldn't be allowed to vote. Like <laughs> that makes sense. I, you know, and and also, I mean, I think one thing that likely contributes to it, if again, if reincarnation is the rule, um, is kids say weird shit and people often ignore it. And if they forget by the, if most of them forget by the time they're age six, uh, I could see a lot of parents, you know, a lot like what people do with imaginary friends. That's nice dear, And they never really give it any thought or consider that something might be going on here more than a childhood imagination. Yeah, no, that's funny. I actually thought about like, cause I had an imaginary friend when I was a kid. Yeah. And I thought about that. I was like, God, I wish I, you know, I wish my parents had asked me more questions or something about that so that I could then now ask them more about it. But I know back then I don't even think I talked about it all that much, but I remember having an invisible friend and I'm my very unoriginal name for them. Ghosty. Um, and that's all I really remember about it. I know I had uh, an invisible friend named Ghosty and that's it. Yeah. Okay. And as for, um, The the other thing, uh, baby, that you that you brought up of the idea of like, how does universal consciousness fit in with the idea of 
reincarnation. I was I was rambling about this to Nick is in Hinduism specifically, the universal consciousness is God. It is the true reality and life us down here. That is a tragic and painful separation from the truth that we are supposed to be joining. Uh, um, I was using the metaphor of like, that is a giant pile of all the wool that has ever existed. And us living here, we are little puppets made of socks stuffed with a very particular handful of that wool. And we're trying to get out of the sock puppets and back into the wool because we're cold <laughs> and lonely and we don't like being just stuck by ourselves in a sock puppet. And that that's kind of that's kind that's kind of also where my head is at in regards to that particular um conversation and it it might be something more like nick said about like no we choose to leave the wool pile and be a sock puppet for a while and no one's really sure why but yeah i think i think it is possible for individual clumps of whatever the truth is made out of to kind of leap from the larger collective and join like join with a with a flesh puppet in order to be able to do things for a while um and i, I don't i don't know i don't really know why and this is probably a tangent but yeah to to summarize i i think it is i think if reincarnation is the rule it's just very very difficult to remember our past lives, especially because, yes, the, the mind and the brain are separate, but the brain is it is a hard drive of a lot of our memories and moving from one physical brain to another physical brain might just cause massive memory wipes. It mm. might it might be something as simple as if you are not spiritually attuned to cover your to co- to convey your memories from one life to a next, you, you might not be able to copy the old shit onto nude hardware. God damn it, I shouldn't have updated my iOS between lives. <sighs> I lost everything. That's why you don't know kung fu anymore, you idiot. <laughs> You have to relearn Kung Fu. Great. I don't have the flexibility for that. I don't know how anybody has the flexibility for Kung Fu. You start at age three and you do it every single day. That yeah. That's how you do it. Oh, you mean hard work. That's why I didn't want to mm-hmm. do it. Single-minded <laughs> dedication to a craft that will never have applicability in your day-to-day life uh, because people have guns now. Oh, you mean like writing? Like my whole life. <laughs> Nah, people are still going to be reading words for at least another 20 years, and then the government will outlaw it. That is the saddest thing you've said on this show. Really? And, and, and we'll be alive in 20 years. That sucks. Yeah, that really sucks. <laughs> I don't want to live in Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, no, no, thank you. I'll, pa- I'll pass on that life. Let's, so the world's let's been over since 89. I was born in 89. Do we have any other thoughts on this question? Uh, uh, nope. Okay. So in that case, we're going to move on to section two to death and back again. 
1977, Kimberly Clark Sharp was a medical social worker in the Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. Her world was upended that April when she met Maria, a patient who had suffered a massive heart attack and had in fact died for a short time before she was resuscitated. However, as Kimberly was shocked to learn, Maria had been watching the whole time from a position outside her body. Known as the veridical out-of-body experience, Maria, like others before and since her, found herself floating in the upper corner of the room, watching the frenzied medical team work to save her life. She came back with accurate memories of the things said and the steps taken, along with one other very odd observation. During her time out of body, she had found herself floating outside the building, three stories in the air, where she noticed a lone tennis shoe sitting on a window ledge. The shoe was in a spot that was not perceptible from anywhere on the ground, or in fact anywhere, save for a building over a mile away from which one would need binoculars or a telescope to see it, ensuring that Maria had not simply spotted it on her way into the hospital. Assuming her patient was confused, Kim set out to find this mystery shoe. Imagine her shock when, peering out of a third floor window, she saw the shoe exactly where Maria had said it'd be. Kim, realizing something odd had happened, took down Maria's story in detailed notes and shared it with the other staff. Surprisingly, few of her colleagues were surprised, as many in the medical field had already heard stories of experiences exactly like Maria's. However, as skeptics and lap advocates argue, her story does not indicate the survival of consciousness after death. Rather, just that consciousness can exist outside the body. As Janice Holden of the University of North Texas argues, quote, the consciousness associated with a body that has not yet lost the potential to live may or may not be the same consciousness associated with a body that has lost that potential. In other words, when the body is well and truly unrecoverable, the free-floating consciousness may just dissolve. Regardless of which possibility is true, the out-of-body experience continues to confound our understanding of the mind-body relationship and introduces us to the mystery of how conscious thought and memory can continue despite the brain being effectively turned off. And for some, the experience doesn't just stop with an OBE, but goes further, leaving this world entirely and giving us a tantalizing glimpse of the other side. Most who see the afterlife realm describe it as somehow more real than reality, a place filled with light and love, and most return having lost their fear of death. Most report passing through a tunnel of light, seeing deceased loved ones, and sometimes even encountering an entity that they believe to be a god or perhaps guardian spirit. This remains consistent regardless of personal religion, culture, or belief, and when studied, their memories of these events seem to originate from the areas of the brain responsible for processing real, lived experiences, rather than fantasy. As Keen writes, quote, something actually happens during an NDE that we have yet to understand. Experiencers have no doubt that they crossed over into a wondrous afterlife realm to which they will someday return, and that death is merely a doorway to that other world. This is perhaps best shown in the truly remarkable story of Pam Reynolds, a songwriter and composer who, at age 25, was diagnosed with an inoperable brain aneurysm. With nothing to lose, she sought a highly risky and rare procedure performed by Dr. Robert Spetzler, during which she would be clinically, though temporarily, killed. 
First, her eyes were taped shut, and in order to constantly measure her brain activity, speakers were inserted into her ears, which emitted a sound comparable to a lawnmower running right next to her head. Then, all of her blood was drained and cooled, and the entire top half of her skull was removed to gain access to the afflicted area. Her heart had stopped beating, and as the EKG confirmed, she had zero brain activity. She was well and truly dead. However, when revived over an hour later, pumped full of reheated blood, she stunned everyone with her detailed memories of the other side. As she says, she was woken by an annoying sound and popped out of herself to discover it was the saw being used to cut her skull open, a unique wand-shaped device that she would later describe accurately to her surgeon, despite never having seen it while conscious. Furthermore, she felt incredibly free, no longer seeing her body as herself, but that thing. She tried to talk to the doctors, and when that failed, she noticed a light high above which seemed to suck her towards it. Once inside, she saw many deceased loved ones she knew, and some she did not. They were wearing liquid light, floated in a plane without material landscape, and spoke through mind-to-mind telepathy. They were, they claimed, just there to keep her safe before she was revived. As the operation neared an end, she was coaxed to return to her body by the dead, and when she refused, she was pushed, physically, by her uncle. (laughs) You get in there. (laughs) What is interesting here to note is that at no point did she register any brain activity, meaning that this could not possibly have been a dream or hallucination. In fact, if we follow the strictly materialist understanding of the brain, she should not have been able to form memories or make any of the correct observations she reported about the operation theater. Even if she had somehow woken during the surgery, she would not have been able to see or hear anything given the tape on her eyes and the aforementioned lawnmower in her ears. And Pam isn't alone. The AWARE study, one of the largest and most comprehensive studies of near-death experiences, found that Pam's story matches up eerily well with the story shared by the 20% of death experience patients who report memories during their time dead. Quote, after many years of research, it has become clear to me beyond a reasonable doubt that there is a continuity of consciousness after the death of the physical body, writes Dr. Pim Van Lamel, a recognized global authority on the NDE phenomenon, in a chapter that he authored for the book. In his work, Lamel found that NDE experiencers believe that they have seen the true afterlife, and most feel that the experience was decidedly positive, often prompting drastic life changes in the aftermath. All also reported that the other world felt, again, more real than this one, and even indicated experiencing faster and more clear thought, as if the governor had been stripped off their minds. These things occurred regardless of the duration of death, medication, fear of death, gender, religion, foreknowledge of NDEs, or education. And of those reporting out-of-body experiences, 90% of their observations about things they'd seen while out of the body were verified as correct. He excluded psychological, physiological, and pharmacological factors, and his results were later verified by multiple peer studies. To Lamel, this indicates one inevitable conclusion. Quote, Based on the universal reported aspects of consciousness experienced during cardiac arrest, we can surmise that the informational fields of our consciousness, likely consisting of waves, are rooted in an invisible realm beyond time and space and are always present around and through us, permeating our bodies. In other words, death 
like birth, is simply the passing from one form of consciousness to another. Taking this in conjunction with the earlier discussions surrounding reincarnation, some may rightly ask, so what happens between lives? For this, we return to the work of Jim Tucker and those rare children who report not only remembering their past lives, but remembering the time between lives. Based off their testimonies, he has identified what appears to be three distinct phases of the between life period. The first is the transitional stage, during which they often report witnessing their funeral in spirit form, following earthly loved ones, and largely coming to grips with their own death. Next comes the stable stage, during which many reported going to the afterlife and meeting deceased loved ones. And finally, the return stage, during which the discarnate spirit, in some cases, chooses their parents. This is exemplified by Ryan Hammond, who remembered a dinner his parents had had in Hawaii before he was even born, citing that he had been present in spirit and that this was the moment he decided they would be his next parents. However, one should not assume that the phenomenon surrounding death begins when we die. As a chapter written by Dr. Peter Fenwick, a neuropsychiatrist at the Royal College of Psychiatrists details, the end of life experience can be just as strange. While it may be common knowledge among hospice workers and medical professionals, most are unaware that the historical record is packed full of people who, on their deathbeds, report visitations from the other side. These experiences are seldom frightening, often featuring discarnate spirits returning to help ease the transition, comfort the dying, and ensure they are ready when their time comes. And what is more, some of these experiencers report testing the waters of death before diving in. Through his research, Fenwick found that 30 to 60 percent of deathbed patients report mentally phasing in and out of this material reality. These events most often occur while the patient is conscious and lucid and mirrors the NDE narrative to a startling degree, including realms of white light, deceased loved ones, and an intense feeling of contentment. And when death does come, the strangeness keeps on rolling. Many caregivers and trained medical professionals have reported seeing a white mist or light leaving the body. Others have said that clocks in the patient's room stopped at the moment of death. When wrapping up his argument, Fenwick writes, quote, People often ask me if I believe in life after death. This question must be removed from the field of belief into the field of data. The dying have no doubt about this. Once they've seen their deathbed visitors and have been in the alternate reality, they know that they are going to be picked up and will be helped to transit into an area of love and light. Which brings us to our third discussion question. Let's go. <laughs> when reading this section of the book, I noticed a lot of strange parallels between the spirit world described by NDE experiencers and what is reported by alien abduction experiencers. In both cases, the experience is reported as being realer than real, and for some, comes with the same intense feeling of love and contentment. Is this a coincidence, a sign that these phenomenon are interrelated, or something else? That's a good question. Yeah, that's the that, in my opinion, is the hard one. I didn't initially think about it from this perspective. And I, even though I read these questions ahead of time, I didn't think about this one at all, apparently. But <laughs> I do see the, the, the parallels that you're, that, you're, that, that, that you're referencing. I mean, like, yeah, 
<laughs> I, I, I think look on your face right now. You you look so confused. Like, yeah, I, 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 I mean, before this, I thought that there was some kind of uh, relation between even just the alien phenomenon and potentially life after death. But that's because I believe in the whole idea of consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the greater, co- the greater consciousness. And I think that's where the parallel really comes in. What if, you know, our favorite phrase, um, an alien and a lot of alien abduction experiences, let's say specifically the more psychic ones, um, what they're experiencing is their consciousness outside and separate from their body, very similar to these NDE experiencers. They're the only, I guess the only big difference is one of them is one person, the person experiencing the near death experience is feeling it in a more natural sense, right? Maybe when the alien, when aliens, other entities abduct us, abduct us, like it's me, uh, people, um, it's more towards their frequency or the, like with their life. But the difference is you're still feeling that same sense outside of your, your body. And then maybe that is what that sensation of love and light is, is when you're outside of your body inside this, your, your less, your, your metaphysical form. I, I don't, I don't know what to call it. That's where that, that sensation comes in because what you're feeling is, I mean, I'm just speculating, obviously, is uh, the full weight of being one with that greater consciousness. Yeah, sure. I could see that. You know, now it's kind of like what you said with uh, or what you said, Jay, with with Buddhism is we are like striving to get to that truth. Right. So when you experience it, maybe via alien abduction or you experience it via near death experience, you're getting a sense of that truth. So you're feeling it. And then now when you come back to this horrible body that we have been plagued with, nothing is going to feel as, as good as that ever. I mean, in a, a lighter comparison, how great do you feel after you get a massage? I don't feel good after a massage. Okay, that's how just me. All right. Let's not use how great. I mean, at least for me, I guess, how great do do you feel or how more grounded do you feel when you, after you've meditated? Quite a bit. Right. Uh, although I, I, I could also relate it to uh, after the car accident, I was in a full body plastic shell. So taking off the shell. Yeah. When I, the first time I walked through the parking garage of the hospital without the shell, I, when they, in that last appointment where they said I could stop wearing it, uh, that was, I don't know. I felt like I was walking on a cloud. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's a, like, these are all similar comparisons because when our bodies, minds are struggling with the everyday thing that is life, you know, we're not, we're, we've got a million things that we're trying to process. You know, our, our brain, believe this or not, is constantly trying to, is constantly intaking over 40, is it over 40 million different uh, fields of data at any one time? Do you know how many our brain actually process of those millions of pieces of data at one moment? 40. Mother of God. 
out of millions of different streams of data that's coming into our brain at any given moment, we're only able we're we're only actually processing forty of them in our in our forward in our forward brain, our conscious brain. The rest goes into our subconscious. So maybe this form, because we no longer have the limitations of our brain, is we're actually able to intake all of that data, all of that information, and we're not weighed down by everything else. Jay, what do you think? So Rory gave Rory's Rory's explanation was was very eloquent and very rooted in the all of the other things that we've discussed before. Thank you. You're welcome, baby. So I'm going to go ahead and spin one of Jay's classic wild theories. <laughs> go for it. We haven't had one of those in a while. I'm ready. Um, so that that other that other plane that we go to between lives or when we're ready to leave the karmic cycle that 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 place where uh where it's like it, it, it of light and love and peace and bliss. What if there's a whole bunch of like aliens that <laughs> what if that's how they get from one end of the universe to another? Like what if they have a ship that can like tear a hole and they just duck in there and they're like, no, no, no. See, you go in here, you go about two light years this way and ping, you're in Earth. And then they just <laughs> they abduct us and they take us back in there for all of their bullshit experiments because they're like, look, if you do it to them in here, they don't freak out. So you're saying that aliens are using the spirit world as a shortcut. Yes. OK. No, I mean, here's the thing is, you know, that's actually not as bad as like the carjacked by God bits. Yeah. No, like that is that is legitimately. <laughs> here's the thing is I was actually thinking something very similar when I was trying to rectify uh, this question in my head, because I, I started thinking about Whitley Strieber. Uh, as we know, some of his encounters involved what appeared to be ghosts showing mm-hmm. up at the same time that mm-hmm. aliens did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what if. And this is a big what if. What if aliens are us in a way? They are other consciousnesses who primarily exist in that higher realm, but they're kind of like acting like system admins. When something needs to be done here on this earth, when they need to adjust someone's programming, they put on a convenient suit to contain their consciousness because a lot of uh, experiencers have said things like that, like the whole gray appearance is a suit of some kind or the aliens themselves have described it as a suit which their true form is inside of what if it's the again it's a system admin loading themselves into an avatar to come down into our world where they can physically work and then they go back to being a free-floating conscious fart cloud up in heaven so you're saying essentially that we're that that there might be like an owen wilson's character in loki kind of situation going on yeah except like you know cthulian right right I I'm also wondering if like um because this is a thing found in in western demonology and also once again in Mahayana Buddhism is the idea of like demons are obviously they're not twisted corrupted human souls they're just the indigenous inhabitants of a hell dimension maybe Aliens are legitimately just like they they were created spontaneously in whatever that plane is and they lived there and then humans started evolving and then it's like, hey, hey, these these things from the material world keep popping up here after they die and they've been that's why they're conducting experiments on us is they're like, how are you getting here? Mm -hmm. Maybe. I mean, that that 
theory is very close to one that's very popular in the UFO circles right now. The whole uh, Dr. Eric Davis's shadow biome hypothesis that the aliens we're seeing are coming from basically an alternative Earth, another wavelength of reality that overlaps with ours. Yeah, the future, future us thing. Well, that's one of them. There's also the interdimensionals, hyperterrestrials or ultra terrestrials technically would fall into that camp. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, granted, who knows? Certainly not me. Not us. No. I don't know shit. Nope. (laughs) No, but I I did just find it very interesting, especially uh, in particular, the realer than real piece that very that to me indicates there that might be just the same place that they're going. And maybe the reason those dead popped up around uh, Whitley Strieber's case, as well as some other experiencer cases, is because. Maybe either A, the dead hitched a ride or B, if they are, if the whole system admin thing is true, they were brought along to help. You know, that uh, Skinwalkers or Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. People and I don't I haven't read. We haven't read the book yet. We're going to, but we haven't read it yet. The Skinwalkers at the Pentagon coming up. One thing. Yeah. Yeah. Plug for future episode. Uh, One thing that. uh they, I know that they talk about there because I've listened to interviews about it and whatnot. Um, is that a lot of the people that that went to Skinwalker Ranch started having other paranormal events start happening around their their house and their lives, mm-hmm. um, but not UFOs like ghosts and shit. Yeah, and poltergeist yeah, and, activity and, and cryptids. Yep, I was just saying like cryptids, but yeah, so. I, I think I think there's weight there in the sense of uh, there's definitely correlation in some way to all of this because they all seem to intersect all the time, you know, be mm. it like this or with, you know, sightings and whatnot. But, or even talking about uh, that one story where it kind of seemed like Dogman got picked up by a UFO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also a report from Puerto Rico in which there was a there was a well-documented UFO sighting. And then two days later, uh, two uh, preteen girls found a chupacabra in the same location. Uh, is that the Virginia crash? The demon of Virginia thing? I think it might be. It was yeah. again, it was in Puerto Rico and I wasn't familiar with the crash. I was just it was I was oh. listening to a thing about the Puerto Rican chupacabra. Oh, yeah, that, talk- that, that that wouldn't be the Virginia crash. Yeah. then. But yeah. still, I mean, that's cool. Who knows? Maybe chupacabra is like an alien dog. It's like their pet. Chupacabras are cool as fuck. I like them a lot, personally. And on that bold yet controversial statement, we'll move on to part three, communications from non-local minds. Look at me. I'm controversial. (laughs) Seeking a deeper insight into the world of the dead, Keen set out to find for herself an authentic mental medium. Mental mediumship is the kind we are all most likely familiar with. The medium uses psychic mechanisms to converse with entities in the spirit world and then relays those messages back to their living client, known as a sitter. And sadly, as Keen well knows, it is a field chock full of frauds, employing all manner of deceptions to dupe their clients. All my fielding. In fact, (laughs) one study found that as few as 10 to 15 percent of mediums can display their abilities in a controlled setting with a high enough accuracy rate to rule out guesswork. To make sure she got a good one, Keen reached out to the Forever Family Foundation and the Winbridge Institute 
two organizations that have long been involved in the scientific investigation of mediumship and whom offer extensive accreditation tests under which mental mediums are invited to show their abilities under a controlled setting. I will admit that the phrase accredited psychic does make my eyes glaze over and I'm trying to get past that. You're going to have to. Uh, Upon the recommendation, she sought out a high school English teacher and mother of three, Laura Lynn Jackson. To prepare, Keene took precautions. She communicated with Jackson under a false name and had a friend conduct all emails to and from the medium to ensure Jackson would not have the chance to do any research on Keene beforehand. As several people had told Keen that these experiences require one to go native, as it were, she meditated in the weeks leading up to the event, quietly asking two deceased loved ones, her brother who had died recently, and her good friend, the late great Bud Hopkins, to show up when the medium called for them. And when the day arrived, they showed up in spades. Both, through the medium, shared bits of information that could only be known to Keen and the deceased, including Bud exclaiming, you were right, a reference to an argument he and Keen had had while he lay on his deathbed regarding the possibility of an afterlife, an idea which Bud rejected offhand. Her brother's spirit, likewise, provided details about their shared childhood, which could not have been known to Jackson. Keen left buzzing, but only half convinced. The real test, she decided, was to do it again with a different medium and compare results. Towards that end, she sought out Sandra O'Hare of Dublin. Taking the same precautions as before, she had a Skype call with Sandra, and immediately Sandra zeroed in on two discarnate spirits looking to make contact. To Keen's shock, Bud and her brother repeated the exact same messages that they had through Jackson, including numerous other details of their time together on Earth, of which 85 to 90 percent of the statements were accurate. This, despite the fact that neither medium were aware of Keen's real identity, nor each other living on opposite sides of the planet. In a chapter authored by Dr. Julie Bichelle, a pharmacologist, toxicologist, and co-founder and director of the Winbridge Institute, we get a view of the scientific work that has been done to verify the abilities of mediums like Jackson and O'Hare. In their work, they tested the psychology of mediums, finding most to be of good mental and social stability. In addition, they tested the medium's abilities under controlled settings, including a hyper-compartmentalized, triple-blind study where neither the medium, sitter, or researcher had all the information about who the sitter and discarnate was until the very end. And from that study, they found that, quote, the statistically significant, that is, real and evidential, accurate data from a combined total of 74 mediumship readings performed under more than double-blind conditions that eliminated fraud, experimenter cueing, raider bias, and cold reading, show that mediums report accurate and specific information about discarnates without any prior knowledge about the discarnates or sitters and no sensory feedback. In other words, certain mediums have unexplainable abilities to say correct things they shouldn't otherwise know about dead people. While proponents of the lap hypothesis say that mediums could unconsciously be using a form of powerful psi to read the minds of those around them, the mediums themselves disavow this idea, citing that they feel they are in contact with distinct others who come from outside the self. 
In addition, when viewing the electrical activity in the medium's brain while they commune with a discarnate, Bichelle found that the areas of the brain associated with imagination or lies remained dormant, while other areas, those associated with visual processing, lit up. And to the skeptics who claim that a real medium would have a 100% accuracy rate, both Jackson and Sandra describe the process as akin to charades with the dead, and any misses are due to their own failures to interpret the message. But does any of this actually prove that consciousness survives death? For that, we look to transmediumship and the phenomenon of drop-in communicators. A trance medium has the ability to enter into a trance-like state during which their own consciousness is suppressed, allowing discarnate entities, usually a small set of control spirits or spirit guides, to speak directly through their mouths. One example explored thoroughly in a chapter written by Dr. Alan Gauld, a retired psychology professor and leading researcher into trance mediumship, is that of medium Lenora E. Piper, who lived from 1857 to 1950. Among her reported feats, all of which were carefully controlled and detailed by a team of psychiatrists and researchers, her spirit controls were able to venture far from her body and accurately report back the contents of books on shelves that Piper had never seen nor was even aware of. In an attempt to disprove the lap hypothesis, by which Piper would have obtained this information through advanced telepathy and remote viewing, they had her sit with proxy sitters. These sitters came with a small token belonging to a deceased individual whom they did not know, standing in for the deceased's actual loved ones. Still, Piper was able to call up the correct spirit, and when her results were shared with the actual sitter, were proven to be accurate. In this way, one discourages the lap hypothesis, unless one assumes she was able to psychically not only identify the correct sitter, but also locate them and read their mind at great distance. However, the most compelling argument against the lap hypothesis is the phenomenon of drop-in communicators. These are discarnate entities who, despite not being invited by the medium, drop in on a seance. One notable case being that of Runolfer Runke Runolfsson of Iceland, who dropped in on a seance led by well-known Icelandic medium Hofstein Bjornsson. Through the medium, Runke eventually indicated that he had fallen asleep drunk on the shore and been swept out to sea in his sleep. His body was recovered, but not his leg, which, according to Runke, washed ashore some time later and, for unknown reasons, was then sealed into the walls of a local house. A house which, as it turned out, one of the sitters was the current owner of. They broke open the wall and found the leg bone. Nobody in the room, including the medium, previously knew of Runke, what happened to him, or that a human leg bone was in the walls of that house. If the lap hypothesis was correct, the medium would have had to somehow read the minds of the sitters, remote view to their homes, find the bone inside the walls, then somehow psychically glean who its owner was and what happened to them. Put that way, the survival hypothesis seems much more simple in explanation. After that, Keen continues to build her body of evidence by turning her attention to those instances where the dead seem to communicate with the living without the aid of a medium, also known as after-death communications, or ADCs. Rarely documented and even less understood, ADCs have long been written off as the product of wishful thinking, the bereaved eager to seize upon any suggestion that their deceased loved one has survived. These take the form of dreams, phantom smells, coincidence, 
disembodied voices and other signs which, to the bereaved, seem to be messages from the other side. In a 1970 study by Icelandic researcher Ellender Haraldsson, upwards of 31% of people report having experienced ADCs, over half of which occurred within the first year after death, and 86% of which occurred within the first hour of death, often without the bereaved even knowing that the deceased had died. Even Keen claims to have experienced this when her brother died. Not only had she dreamed of him telling her that he was all right, she had, after meditating and asking him for a sign of his survival, experienced several poltergeist-like events, culminating in the sighting of a full apparition at her bedside in 2015. While these events, and those others detailed in the book, do not constitute scientific proof, Keen argues that they do represent personal proof. To the people receiving these messages, the emotional resonance of the event feels intuitively real. As she writes, quote, no one can prove any of these events and we will never know for sure what ADCs actually are. The experiences described here either come from the energy of a surviving consciousness with whom the recipient was deeply bonded, or they were created by internal unconscious forces that we don't understand. So I, too, can't see a reason not to trust the intuitive certainty that comes during the experience when one steps unintentionally outside the materialist framework. In those moments, I can't see a reason not to believe. Which brings us to our fourth discussion question. Let's talk a little bit about ADCs. Have you guys ever experienced uh, what you felt was an after-death communication? And do you think that they are truly the product of communication from the other side, a side effect of natural human grief, or something else entirely? Um, I have never had an ADC. I, I, can, I can say that firmly. Like, I've, I've, spoken, I've spoken to a couple of mediums, but I have no way of verifying their accuracy, and they did not tell me... They did not tell me any. <sighs> there was what there was one thing at Paracon. There was one thing at Paracon, but I have literally no way of verifying it. If oh. it, and it's it's one of those things where if it is true, I, I I'm leaving it the fuck alone because that person's parents have suffered enough. And I'm not if 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 what I was told by that medium is true, that that. That secret died with that person, and I'm not, I'm not bringing it up. Fair okay. enough. Um, but I, I, the these chapters about after after death communications, I did I found them compelling. I found them evidential, and so I think that it's probably a mix of both. I think there are some mediums out there that are probably actually just very gifted with ESP. And there are probably some that do genuinely communicate with the dead, but I've had no personal experiences that I could comfortably put in the category of an after death communication. Fair enough. Yeah, me neither. I don't think at least I can't recall any, anything that came to me directly that would be like an after death communication or anything like that. Like, and in terms of mediums, I've only ever sat with one and that was with Jay mm-hmm. and, and only part of it was even directed towards me. And I mean, that was accurate, I guess. I, I mean, I didn't get a lot of details. I did. I wasn't going into it with the mindset of trying to prove whether or not, you know, she was a fraud. I was, we were just sitting there, you know, you're having fun. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and then I cried. So, you know, fun is a perspective, I guess. So I'm I'm curious I'm curious if you don't mind saying, did she come up with any details that you're not that you can't place how she could have known that? I mean, for for me, I I mean, it's it's an easy shot to when you look at somebody who's my age or uh, who appears my age because I look like I'm probably in my mid to late 20s, early 30s like I am. Yeah. Um that I likely lost a grandparent. Like that's a pretty easy distinction. However, um, a lot of I, I would say that most people would probably lean into uh, assuming that if I was close to anybody, it would have been to my grandfather. I didn't know either of my grandfathers. Um, and she pulled literally; it was like out of thin air, um, asking if one of our grandparents or if one of our grandmas had died, and that we were close to. And of the two of us, that's only me. Yeah. Okay. You know. Okay. So, like that, I guess is like the only thing, but you know, that can be, you know, that could have been just a lucky guess. Sure. And and anything, but. But you still had an emotional reaction to it. Yeah, it was literally the one thing I didn't want her to talk about was my grandma, just because of how much it hits me hard still. Yeah even though it's been years since, since she passed away, but her and I were exceptionally close. Like she was, I always said she was my favorite person in the world. You know, that was just who she was. So, so funnily enough, uh, part of the reason I put this in here is because much like me with you and the dog man sighting, when I read that, I realized I've had two of these. Oh, um, and one of them, it wasn't just me. The one that was just me, obviously, as I'm, it was, I was the only one who heard it. I it, it really the veracity of it comes down to how much you trust me. But um, when my grandfather passed, uh, he obviously I was at home in my bedroom uh, up at college. And I remember my grandma, my grandma, actually, I was she, I was the first person she managed to get a hold of because she knew that I was most likely to be up at ridiculous hours. Uh, but just before she called. I could swear I heard in my house, my grandfather say, well, I'll be damned. And my grandfather never believed in an afterlife. Uh, oh my God. And oh. yeah. And, but the other story, and this one wasn't just me, it was after my grandma died. Uh, we took her ashes down to the Gulf of Mexico and we spread them uh, kind of on, on these rocks going out to the water because my grandpa was spread out in the water, but we didn't want to spread my grandma out there because she couldn't swim and she was afraid of the ocean. Oh. So we spread her on the shore. And, you know, obviously it's a very emotional event. My whole family's yeah. there. We're all kind of crying. But just as we came back from the, the rocky outcropping back on a more solid ground, we all turned around and we saw these two birds flying like in perfect parallel to each other. They swooped down and kind of did a half circle around us. And then they flew behind that outcropping of rocks and vanished. We didn't see them come out the other side. We didn't see them land. And mm. as soon as that happened, all of us broke out in goose flesh. And both my mom and my aunt said, it's them. It's my grandma and grandpa. They're back together. And I kept thinking about Keen's description of kind of that intuitive truth that comes yeah. with these experiences. Every single person there, including 
many members of my family who don't believe anything like this. We all got that feeling that we that was a sign from them that they're okay and they're together. Uh, that that said, obviously that could be wishful thinking, but I, I guess much like Keen, given the emotional catharsis it provided, I don't see a reason to doubt it. Yeah, I think that goes. With a lot of things that we've actually said on the show in relation to these kind of experiences is like, even if a medium turns out to be fraudulent for whatever reason, if you got some kind of positive experience out of it or closure, whatever it was, I don't, I I don't want to say I don't see the harm in that because there is innately harm in, in, in somebody being, being a fraud, but also, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from that closure that, that closure that you experience, that, uh-huh. that feeling that you experience. Yep. Now, when you were talking, I had a thought and I, I wouldn't call this an after death communication, but I think that there's some kind of correlation here to like pre death around that scenario. Right. So the day that my grandmother passed away, my dad called me at, it was like five, four thirty in the morning. Now, anybody who knows me knows that if I am asleep, mm-hmm. I am asleep. My phone could be on loud and right next to my ear. And unless it's my alarm, and even sometimes then that won't wake me up. I I won't wake up. I just I sleep like a rock. I know. Sometimes, I've seen it. <laughs> sometimes your alarm wakes me up first, and then I wake you up. Yeah, exactly. So like, I woke up on the first ring. And I knew that, like, I knew in, in immediately what the phone call was about, why he was calling me. It was like I had woken up prepared for what was happening. I wasn't prepared, but, you, you know, like enough that I knew what was going on. And I was immediately fully 100% awake. I wasn't a, like I wasn't even groggy. I was nothing. I just I got up out of bed and I went and saw my grandma for the last time. And she was, she was in, in, at the time she was in a coma. Um, and I think that this kind of, in a way plays to both sides, like that there's a, there's a level like for them and their consciousness and all of that. But like when we got there, I couldn't, I couldn't speak because I was so like floored by the, you know, this was happening. Um, and when she passed away, it was after my aunt and I left the room. Like oh. she was waiting until we weren't there anymore. And I knew as soon as it happened, like I just had this sense, like we we had gone down to the cafeteria to get food because neither of us had eaten in hours, you know. And my Uncle Brian was... uh just trying to get us out of the room mm-hmm. so that we could get some food and you know, whatever. Um, we didn't even get our meal before. Like I just had this overwhelming sensation. Like they're, they're about to tell us that you passed away after we left the room. And it was like almost immediate. Yeah. Well, and we didn't talk, I didn't get a chance to include this in the summary, but during the section talking about uh, the kind of the moment of death phenomenon, there's a shockingly large percentage of people who report having an experience like that where they just knew at the moment that the person had passed on. Well, that was a that was a a, a, a tearjerker of a of a question. Are we ready to move to our last section? Yeah. Yes. All right, our last section. 
Part four, the impossible made real. In the final section of the book, Keen covers what, to many, is the most extraordinary and hardest to believe evidence for the survival hypothesis. These are the physical mediums. Taking trance mediumship a step further, the physical medium creates within the seance space an environment in which the discarnate entities, via the manipulation of ectoplasm from the medium, can move objects, speak, sing, and engage in direct contact with the living by physically materializing parts of or their entire body. While I am sure for some of our listeners, that idea has sent the bullshit alarms off in your head, the research and Keene's experience is hard to question. Applying every bit of her journalistic skill set to avoid frauds, Keene first dug into the historical record of physical mediums, most of which come from the spiritualist movements of the mid-1800s and early 1900s. As she laments, in the modern day, most physical mediums aren't public with their gift for fear of ridicule and the extreme nature of their abilities. In fact, so extraordinary are the events that occur within the seance space that even for the most hardened of researchers, most experience intense ontological shock upon their first sitting with a physical medium. One notable example being the investigation of Yusupita Palladino who, in 1908, was studied in Naples by three men of science, all of whom had made their careers investigating and exposing fraudulent mediums. So much so that when they teamed up for the Palladino case, they dubbed themselves the Fraud Squad like a bunch of giant dorks. (laughs) As Everard Fielding, one of the principal investigators, later said, quote, My mind was not prepared to accept the phenomenon which occurred, and yet I was unable to suggest any loophole for fraud in the production of any of them. And boy, did that make all three of them angry. Oh, yeah, it did. (laughs) Under controlled conditions, the three men sat with Palladino in 11 seance sessions, all conducted in a room with enough light to see by. This is important as most mediums say their gift works best in the dark, much to the delight of debunkers. During this time, they were witness to a guitar playing itself, apparitions, and disembodied hands materializing in midair. As researcher Hereward Carrington wrote, quote, That human hands, having all the peculiarities of hands, even in the presence of fingernails, should become visible and tangible during a seance, these hands not being usapias nor any of the sitters. This is so utterly in variance with common sense that one finds it next to impossible to believe it. And yet, these hands are real, and by no possible means could they have been usapias. Why were you a 50s radio announcer during that? I don't know. That's just what came out of my soul when (laughs) I read that quote. I don't know why. Yeah, all right. I'm here for it. In a follow-up chapter written by Dr. Ellender Haraldson, we explore the physical mediumship of Icelandic-born Indridi Indridason. And also the worst name on the planet. Indridi? One of the most intensely researched and thus far validated physical mediums in history. In his seance space, hands materialized, apparitions played instruments, lights danced through the air, and disembodied voices often spoke or sang in foreign languages not known to Indridi. One of the common guests being the discarnate spirit of a French opera star, whose singing was reportedly so beautiful that there were none in all of Iceland who could match it. Even stranger, occasionally she'd be joined by another voice, two spirits singing a duet at the same time, making it nearly impossible for the noises to be coming from Indridi. 
Each spirit demonstrated a unique voice, word choice, speech pattern, and personality, and many of them were even solved, their mortal world identity found and verified. And most astonishing, an entire person, a drop-in communicator by the name of Emil Jensen, materialized in full view of a large group of sitters, dressed in flowing white light and appearing to be physically present. And, reportedly, all of this is possible due to ectoplasm, a part physical, part psychical material which exudes from the orify of the medium, usually the mouth. While rarely seen due to the dark light conditions of most seances, I personally was shocked to learn that the material has actually been witnessed and documented under controlled conditions by researchers actively trying to detect fraud, often using a low light red light as it is theorized that intense or sudden light disrupts the material. Likewise, the manifestations can be disrupted if one suddenly touches or grabs them without permission, often with disastrous consequences for the medium, as was the case with Alex Harris, a well-known physical medium who lived from 1897 to 1974. During one seance, two journalists managed to get inside with the plan of exposing Harris as a fraud. When a full-bodied apparition appeared, one of them, assuming it was Harris in disguise, jumped up and grabbed it, only to find that the figure dissolved in his arms. The ectoplasm reportedly snapped back into Harris's head with the force of a sledgehammer, causing him injuries which took two years to heal. And he was never able to do the mediumship again. That person ruined their life. Yeah, it broke him. Like, his face was caved in. Yeah. Can you imagine being the judge providing over the civil case where it's like, he ruined my livelihood. How? He touched my ectoplasmic apparition without consent and he fucked up my head permanently. I'm suing him for $500,000. I mean, the fact that there was two years worth of physical damage to that person's life, um, he deserved to sue him. He's actually, if he was actually entitled to sue him. Like Absolutely. if he wanted to. Absolutely. <laughs> I just, I just, I, I want to, I want to see that Judge Judy episode. <laughs> yeah. Keen decided that to truly investigate the phenomenon of physical mediumship, she would need to sit with one herself. And after some looking, she managed to track down British physical medium Stuart Alexander. With a lively cast of control spirits at his side, including a Native American known as Whitefeather, a child Christopher, a refined charmer named Walter, a young woman named Frida, and a scientist named Dr. Barnett, Stuart and his friends had been conducting seances in Stuart's private home circle for the better part of 30 years. After some time getting to know each other, Keene was invited to join them for a couple seances. Of course, she first investigated the seance space and found nothing amiss. She also found that it was too small for anyone to come or go unnoticed, even in the dark, eliminating the possibility of outside accomplices. Then they began, and soon enough, Alexander entered into a deep trance. The spirits of Walter and Frida soon began to speak through his mouth, Responding to Keene's questions, they explained that the mind is eternal and indestructible, and that when speaking through Alexander, they have temporarily displaced his conscious mind to a degree, taking over 80% of his body, but never 100% as that would likely prove fatal for Alexander. Then, eager to prove themselves, Walter invited Keene to move to Alexander's side. There, in the dark, she was asked to place her hand atop his wrist, which was bound tightly to the chair with a thick tie. Suddenly, Alexander's hand jerked upwards and came free. 
To Keen's amazement, she found that the tie was still looped and unbroken around the arm of the chair. Somehow, his wrist had phased through it. Walter then pulled the intact loop through the arm of the chair and gave it to Keen before she again secured Alexander's wrist. She also witnessed trumpets, uh, small paper cones through which the dead often speak, fly and dance through the air, one of which paused to tickle her nose. When Keen inquired as to how this is possible, the spirit Frida explained, quote, from the ectoplasm, the scientific people in our world are able to create either pseudopods or ectoplasmic arms. It is these that are connecting themselves to the trumpets, dear. Dr. Barnett, speaking not through Alexander's mouth, but from the empty air beside him, explained that he was able to fashion an artificial voice box from the ectoplasm, which allowed them to transform their thoughts into audible sound. Then Keen was asked the all-important question, did she want to see the ectoplasm? Under red light, she sat opposite Alexander and watched as a gauzy, smoky mist flowed across the tabletop, and from it, a disembodied human hand came. Note that at this time, both of Alexander's arms were firmly bound to the chair and in sight, as were the hands of the other sitters. Upon Walter's invitation, she even touched the hand and found it felt warm and very human, down to the tendons sliding beneath the skin. As Walter explained, quote, when the energy ectoplasm has been converted into a form visible to you, when it becomes pliable, when I know that it is of a molecular state which will allow me to work further upon it, I then dip my etheric hand into the energy, into the ectoplasm, which I find clings to my etheric hand. This organized mass from which I create this hand has constituency and weight. It is the weight that creates the problem. It is difficult for us to manipulate physical weight, physical mass, because I come from a world, as you know, which exists on a finer vibrational level than your own. The process of slowing down their vibrational rate to interact with the living was described as intensely uncomfortable, akin to sinking oneself into deep mud. During the following three sittings, these feats were repeated and added to. Once the spirits even lifted Alexander, chair and all, until he floated several feet in the air. Though perhaps more important than the physical manifestations was the experiential evidence reported by Keene. Being in the presence of the spirits simply felt different, filled her with a deep sense of awe, love, and light, and each displayed such a distinct personality that she felt she was truly surrounded by a host of unique, discarnate individuals. In the conclusion of the book, Keen synthesizes all we have heard thus far and puts them forth as a compelling but not definitive body of evidence to support the survival hypothesis. She also invites readers to dwell in the mystery, as there is always the chance that whatever is happening here is far stranger and more incomprehensible than either the survival or lap hypotheses. And that while Keen was largely convinced of the survival of consciousness after death, she acknowledges that without the experience of speaking with these discarnate entities themselves, for many, this topic is simply a bridge too far. However, like it or not, one day we all will need to cross that bridge, regardless of our misgivings or personal beliefs. She concludes as such, quote, We each have a choice about how to engage with these unique human capabilities and mysterious forces, which lie hidden behind the facade of our material world. They have the power to redefine who we are and to change our perception of life and death. Someday, conventional science will come around and recognize them, but until then, we are one step ahead. 
We can draw our own conclusions based off consideration of the evidence, our own experience, and our sense of inner knowing and connection, all of which inform our relationship to the question of survival. I hope this book has opened doors that will allow you to engage meaningfully in that process and to take some solace in the fact that there is abundant mystery all around us and that death may very well not be the end. Which brings us to our final discussion question. But up, up. Uh, and this is really mirroring our first one. Uh, taking everything Keen detailed in the book, do you think that the evidence presented has caused you to adjust your own assumptions or beliefs about death and the afterlife? And where do you fall on the survival versus lap debate? So the latter question is easy for me to answer. Um, survival is definitely where I, I lean in towards of survival versus lap. <laughs> Living <laughs> agent sigh. Yeah. I just, I don't think there is, um, I don't, I, I, it doesn't make as much sense to me. Well, it really, for me, when you lay it all out, it, it's too complicated. It requires, we basically, it, 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 the entire lap hypothesis rests on the assumption that human psychic potential is truly unlimited. And we, we don't, we don't know that. Yeah. Uh, and, and it would all, in such an ornate process to get the information that the mediums or end years, uh, received. And I, I think one of the things in, in this book specifically that helped lean towards, I mean, like I was already more in the survival camp anyway, but like just kind of tighten that, that, that down was the fact that she did, um, like she had a medium from across the world effectively that was able to do to to confirm information that she got from another medium that was also done with you know effective like a kind of uh a weird form of kind of like a blind test yeah now the the book itself i don't necessarily think adjusted my beliefs i think it reinforced them if that makes sense yeah, like it does. i i believed in a lot of this Without having seen all of this evidence, you know, but, and I, and I do want to, I, I guess I want to say like evidence in quotations because while a lot of this is very compelling, if it come, if it came out that she was lying about any of this, the whole book is now in question. Yeah. You know, and, and I just want to, I, I just wanted to say that in the sense of like, and I believe it, mm -hmm. you know. And I trust me, I thought long and hard about a lot of this, about how I could poke holes into a lot of these things. And sure, there's little things that I could that I that I am skeptical of, like with the the first part, reincarnation about the kids and the reincarnation, uh, only because you know it is a very journalistic way of writing to give us a, a nice looking number, but not associate it with a percentage, you know, mm -hmm. which is the thing that actually matters in my mind. You know, um, but that aside, it's still very compelling. Yeah. You know, uh, so I think that the book did a lot to give me fuel in a way to help continue having these conversations with other people, you know, and to just like be it. And now I can cite something, you know, these these actual researchers that have done these things have been like, well, there was triple blind tests that were done to mediums and proved their, their validity to a 90% and above accuracy rate. Mm -hmm. You know, that's insane. I mean, the first uh, medium that she sat with was certified through FFF at like a 95% hit rate. 
Yeah. Never before seen. Like talking about memories that I know I experienced, I probably won't hit a 95% hit rate. Exactly. Like I don't, I, I have the memory of a dead goldfish. Like I can't fucking remember <laughs> shit, but yeah. here we are. Like, and they're able to recall this stuff, you know, this person who's never met another person. Oh, and a good, uh, an important detail about the FFF, uh, certification process is they do their, uh, the sittings over the phone. Yeah. So she can't, you can't do cold readings. Yeah. Cause you can't see the face of the sitter you're dealing with. Right. So I don't, I don't, I, I, that that was probably like the in my opinion i think a lot of the research that she did with the mediums especially because she did a lot of it personally was some of the most compelling evidence in this book and the story of of stuart here at the end was insane to me and peter biebergall is fucking pissed that he didn't get to see the ectoplasm and here (laughs) and now we got that like this it's like holy fuck man you know what I I I couldn't stop thinking through that entire section of the book was I had to put it down and really think for a second of do I believe this do I think that this yeah. person is lying to me no I had to do and the same if if Leslie Keene didn't have the credentials she did I'm not sure I'd believe it but the fact that she is this you know award winning uh, investigative journalist with this very long career and everything to lose yeah. And she is and she is making these claims that are that that wild, that extraordinary. I, I don't know. It's hard for me to disbelieve her. I mean, part of that is also because I'm a sucker for good writing and the book is written very well. Yeah. My only complaint. And this is funny. I think it's kind of funny. My only complaint about how the book is written is all the time she told me how she thinks that I might be feeling. Yeah, I could see that. You know, you'd be like, you know, uh, some readers might be thinking that this is all blah, blah, blah. And it's like, maybe I'm not, but like, okay. All those other guys are assholes. Right. And it's, I, 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 and like, I understand her point of putting that in there because it's like putting up that, that, that frame of mind so that you can give an explanation for it. Mm-hmm. But also, it's like it was in like every section, there was a part like that. It, it kind of felt like, like, she, like she was aware that somewhere someone's uncle is reading this book. Yeah. And like needs to be forcibly moved from section to section. Be like, yeah, yeah. I know, I know you don't, you, you, you're right now, your mind is screaming at you but just keep walking just keep walking yeah no and, and like i and it, i i just took it as those parts of the book weren't for me yeah and that's fair well i mean i quite frankly this is a lot like fringology i feel like this book well insanely compelling i think was definitely written for people who aren't immersed in these kind of topics yeah yeah, yeah. We, were, we were not the target audience well, no, yeah, I, yeah. I, she even says it at, at the start it's about it's this is a chance for people to begin engaging with yeah. this kind of material which is funny because it actually this actually played really well off of fringology yeah it did yeah. uh that was not intentional no uh, the show makes itself <laughs> what about you jay uh like like Rory said, for a lot of stuff, it just reinforced my beliefs. I feel like I have a more refined idea about how I believe that mediums and life after death works. Uh, I'm annoyed that there's so much evidence that reincarnation <laughs> is the default that annoys me bitterly because I don't want to do this shit again. 
I refuse to do this shit again. How mad would you be at yourself if like you got up there, you, you died, you went up there and you found out as like, no, 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 you did this to you. You chose everything that's happened in this life because there's some people who believe that, which I'm not again, I'm not saying that's correct. I think there are a lot of problems with that thought process, but there's some people who believe that. There are some people in some lines of thought that believe that uh, reincarnation is real, but more so you select the trials that you're going to go through in life is a way of trying to force yourself into evolving. Well, I want to beat I want to beat myself up. I would demand to speak to one of the system admins. It's like, why'd you let me do this? There are some things I want to delete from my life plan and they all have names. I would like (laughs) to speak to a manager, please. You are your own manager. No. (laughs) <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just imagining Rory standing on a road going, my life has been terrible. My knees hurt. It's been <laughs> trial after trial. Why did you let me do this to you? And the poor Wendy's worker standing in the window opposite them. <laughs> <laughs> sir, sir, I just asked if you want sauce with your nuggies. <laughs> Sir, you can't come through the drive-thru on foot. Sir, (laughs) sir, stop calling me, sir. (laughs) Individual, return with a car. Individual. Be gone, entity. (laughs) (laughs) I would get nuggies from Wendy's, though. They're they're, they're delicious chicken nuggets. Honestly, I think spicy chicken nuggets, and that's all I need in life. Here's my one hot take for the episode. I think Wendy's has the best chicken nuggets. No, I would agree with that. They're so good. They're so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, now is evidence of reincarnation annoys me. But as for as for ghosts and mediums, it's just largely uh, reinforced my beliefs. Except I believe in ectoplasm now. Um, <laughs> I I didn't before. I was like, nah, ectoplasm's probably dumb and made up, right? I don't know what I based that off of. It just sounded dumb and made up, so I assumed it was. Well, in terms of books that we've read that have talked about it, we are are, uh, one for two in terms of people actually seeing it. And also, I'm glad that I feel more confident that that mediums are a thing again, because after Alma Fielding, I was like, oh, none of you fuckers are a thing. (laughs) No, they're a thing, but as we saw, statistically... They about 10 to 15 percent of them are real. And according to the head of FFF, that statistic is um, generous, generous. Yeah, there are they are. They exist. They're just very rare. And like yeah. like you said, the 95 percent accuracy is is very is is had never been seen before. And I imagine that a lot of the ones that get certified, if it's like, no, they barely passed. Yeah, it was, it, uh, I mean, I, I think they said in the book at some point what the they have to they have to hit 85 percent in order to clear in the 80s so like that's already an insane hit percentage you know yeah but to know that she got like 95 percent is unreal and also i mean beyond the medium's accreditations themselves the fact that the same message was repeated between those two mediums and she had specific and uh, Keenan specifically asked, like she meditated on it and, and, and said to Bud and her brother, like, say something. Yeah. That's the oh. same to like verify that, that that it's still you. And the third medium also said the same thing during the informal reading at the mm-hmm. house in England. Oh, that. Yeah. That, I didn't have a chance to include that in the summary. She did have an informal third sitting with another medium and. Bud Bud Hopkins came through again and said the exact same message. Mm-hmm. And she did mention in she did mention that she had done two others that were not accurate. Correct. Um I do I do have uh 
in one of the readings, I think it was the the either it was the first one. There was a male spirit named William that kept saying how proud he was of her work. And she was like, I have no idea who that is. I think that's William James. Oh, I mean, she did quote William James in the book. So that's a good point. Yeah, I I think that was William James. I mean, maybe. I mean, that's a cool idea. I like it. (laughs) If she responds to our interview request, we can talk to her about it. I'll make sure she is. Yeah, I don't think so either. I I tried reaching out to her publisher, but I I don't think it ever got to her. But that's okay. She's a very busy woman with much more important things to do. Yeah, well, you know, we can dream. Yeah, we got Ralph Lumenthal. Yeah. Did you call him Ralph Lumenthal? Blumenthal. I said Blumenthal. That's his fucking name. I said it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Dear sweet mother of god look i've i've been <laughs> chewing on this book for weeks i'm completely broken um <laughs> i tweeted today that i was ready to to expel this information from my mind because all i've been able to think about for the past like two weeks is death yeah me too no but i i mean i think for me uh very similar to you guys it it just reinforced a lot of my beliefs and suspicions uh and again, I, I keep coming back to and I will say this, uh, Jay, I'm right there with you. This book convinced me that ectoplasm is real, because here's the thing. Even if I don't trust Stuart Alexander, if I don't trust uh, any medium whatsoever, there's a there's a part of me that finds it really hard not to trust Leslie Keen. And yeah. she saw it with her own eyes. She touched it. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I was thinking about that specifically on my ride home from work today, about whether or not I believe in ectoplasm and. The, the the consensus that I came to with myself is similar to what you guys were saying. It's like, well, if I believe her, which I do, then I have to believe that what she's saying is true. So then I guess I believe in ectoplasm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I think that was the hardest part, the hardest pill to swallow for me in this book. Either that or Stuart Alexander is the world's only fog bender. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's just snot. He's just really good at controlling the snot. Okay, you're going to prison. Okay. <laughs> Not you, him. If that's what he did. Oh, I thought I was going go- I thought I was going to prison for my thought crimes. <laughs> no. You're no one no one goes to prison for thought crimes. If Stuart Alexander has been using his own nasal mucus in order to <laughs> fool people at his fucking séances, he has to go to prison for being gross like that like that cop that was fantasizing about eating the lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just i am the great and mighty booger bender <laughs> and prison time <laughs> to go to all the way jail. it's a hell of a party trick when you're in jail all the way jail <laughs> that means that means you go in a hole in the ground so murder no. we moved on to murder <laughs> like this we moved from jail to murder it's not murder i'm not talking about a grave i'm talking about digging a pit with sheer steep sides and putting a person in it and throwing food at them sometimes so you're you want to buffalo bill him that's what you want to do it puts the lotion in the on the skin or it gets the hose again duped Leslie Keen with magic snot, then yes. I just imagining him standing there in like a bathrobe made of snot looking in the mirror going, would you fuck me? Oh God. I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me so hard. Nick, if I throw up up on this floor, you're you're cleaning it up. (laughs) No, I'm not. If you throw up on the floor, I'm throwing up on the floor and then Nick's cleaning it both. No, I won't because I'll just leave and Rory comes down here more often than I do and Rory will end up cleaning it up because it will gross them out. Shut up. (laughs) 
at, at that point, I'll just hire a fucking maid service and not tell them what happened. <laughs> OK, now that we have spun off into true lunacy and gotten that out of our system, are we ready for the about the author? Let's go. Oh, my God. We're at the end. So in a. And I think a first for the show, I actually had too much information and I had to parse this down. So understand what I'm about to read is only a little bit of what's out there about Leslie Keene and her accomplishments and connections. So Leslie Keene is an independent investigative journalist who we know best as one of the reporters to break the 2017 story about the Pentagon secret UFO task force, along with Ralph Blumenthal. And in fact, she has been on the UFO case most of her career, often writing articles advocating for greater attention to be placed on investigating the UFO phenomenon, beginning in 1999 when she was handed a 90-page report of UFO sightings from the French military, which eventually led to an article in the Boston Globe and kicked her down a rabbit hole she has been exploring for two decades. She is the daughter of a well-known environmentalist and philanthropist, Hamilton Keene, and is the granddaughter of Congressman Robert Keene. She attended the Spence Private School in upstate New York and then went to college at Bard University. After a visit to Burma to interview political prisoners, she stumbled into a career in investigative journalism. She took a job at a radio station in Berkeley and then later as a producer for Flashpoints, a left-wing drive-time news program where she covered wrongful convictions, the death penalty, and other criminal justice issues. She's a fucking detective novel character. Yes, she is. She published many articles for Huffington Post between 2012 and 2017, and she has also published her work in a number of other publications, including, but not limited to... MSN, The New York Times, Chicago Tribune, NBC News, SFGate, Sydney Morning Herald, The Times of India, Boston.com, India Express, The Hill, Irish Times, Seattle Times, Star Tribune, The Boston Globe, The Baltimore Sun, National Post, and over 20 other publications. She is the author of two books, of which Surviving Death is the most recent. Her other book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, was a 2010 New York Times bestseller and has been published in eight other languages, and I'm sure we will read it eventually. She also co-wrote a book about the plight of Burmese political prisoners based off her experiences there, titled Burma's Revolution of the Spirit, The Struggle for Democratic Freedom and Dignity. She also wrote the epilogue for the book, An Extraordinary Journey, The Memoirs of a Physical Medium, a book written by the physical medium from the end of the book, Stuart Alexander, as well as the foreword to a book written by psychical researcher Ellender Haraldson. Uh, Surviving Death was also the basis for a six-part documentary series on Netflix by the same name. She once served as plaintiff in a landmark five-year Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against NASA concerning the 1965 crash of an unexplained object in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. She sued NASA? Yes, she was one of the people who sued NASA to get information about that crash. Uh, in 2007, she and the documentary filmmaker James Fox organized a large press conference in Washington, D.C. on official UFO investigations. She has lectured at American University, Rice University, the Franklin Institute, the Institute for Noetic Sciences, and the Omega Institute. She has appeared as a subject matter expert in a huge list of UFO documentaries and programs. And on her work in a 2021 article in The Guardian, she is quoted as saying, my goal has been to take this out of the weird. Maybe it's partly because I'm not weird myself. And I'll say this. I think that's the first thing I've read that she wrote that I don't think is true. Yeah. I think she is. A, she is a weirdo like the rest of us. But that said, I think everyone's weird. Yep. Yep. 
Leslie, yeah. you sued NASA. You're a deeply strange person. And the thing is, like, that is if I just listing her accomplishments, it went too long. Like, and so it, again, I come back to uh, if this was coming from another source, I'd struggle to believe it a lot more. Yeah. Oh, that said, I really enjoyed this book. You guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was great. Yeah, great. I, it, weirdly, I felt like uh, it was a good companion piece to the believer. I felt like they had a similar tone, which was serious. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. I agree. Especially with Bud Hopkins popping up so often if it's just like, ha I'm still here. So now for our next episode, we're going to go into housekeeping. Yeah, let's do it. For our next episode, we are moving away from the large New York Times reporters and to a smaller, less well-known author, Mike Ricksitter. We're going to be reading his book, A Walk in the Shadows, A Complete Guide to Shadow People, mm-hmm. which should be interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a shorter book, uh, but I think that it's going to be a good old time. Well, and also shadow people, frankly, is a phenomenon I have never even once looked into. Same. So this is new for me. New information. And that's uh, that's going to be fun for me because I see that shit all the time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but if you did like what you hear, you know, give us a like, subscribe on whatever streaming platform that you are listening on. It really does help us. And if you're on Apple specifically, leave us a review. Five stars, please. Five stars, please. Uh, all of this does just help uh, the podcast continue to grow. They'll beat me if you don't. That's also true. Uh, and the more we grow, the better the content's just going to get for the rest of you. But if you want to send us an email, any book requests, any suggestions, any thoughts, you want to engage in conversation, go ahead and shoot us an email, noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. And we have a Twitter in which we, we do very much like interacting with with uh, all of our listeners on, and it's at noctivigantpod. And I am also on Twitter at mixroywicks. I am at bearish terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. I also run a Noctivigant Tumblr called Noctivigant Podcast, oddly enough. There's also a Noctivigant Podcast Reddit account on which I occasionally will bother people. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you do bother people. I do. Yeah. But that's what Reddit's for is bothering. Yeah, people. no, it is. It is there to get out your hatred for humanity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our Tumblr's just for memes. Yeah. And now we're, we're also putting the memes on Twitter. Yeah. So if you like memes about the books that we're reading. Which really only makes sense if you've read the book. And or listen to the show. That's true. But other than that, I think that's all we got for you today. Yeah, I think that's it. So take us out of here, Nick. All right. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe on those midnight roads. Don't get lost. Or do. Don't undermine me in front of the audience.
When I die, I'm going to prove the survival hypothesis by blowing up all of Jay and Rory's toilets. Fuck.